Father, we do owe all to you. Lord, and you demonstrated your love when you went to the cross. The shedding of your blood. Lord, may our worship, may our worship not just be coming out of our mouth, but may it be with our lives. May it be with our actions. May we not be people who just gather in church on Sunday to sing a song and hear a guy teach or speak, but may we be people who enjoy that personal relationship with you, who offer our lives to you to be transformed. Lord, our worship, may it be seven days a week in the way that we live, not necessarily in just what we say on Sunday mornings. Lord, open our heart this morning as we study your word. May we be prepared to hear from you. In Jesus' name, amen. If you would open your Bibles to the book of James, we'll be in James chapter 5 this morning as we continue our verse-by-verse study through the book of James. James chapter 5. Just as a reminder to kind of bring us all up to speed, the book of James is written by James, the half-brother of Jesus. Um, he's writing this uh, very early on or, or partway through the first century, and he's, he's really giving us a lot of practical information on how a Christian should live. He's saying, listen, these are the things that I saw of Christ. These are the things that we should live. And it's not always easy to hear. He makes it very clear. He's very short. He's very concise with his points. And he's, it's almost like he gives them to you rapid fire. Hey, Christians should, you know, your, your faith should produce works. I don't want to hear this talking nonsense. I want to see it in your life. You know, and he's going to continue that through, through chapter 5 here. But it's very, very specific. And, and he doesn't leave a lot of room, room for gray area on the life of a believer. And he makes it, you know, hey, we should be doers of the word, not just hearers. Don't just sit and listen. Do it. Get out and do something. And he's going to kind of continue that here in chapter 5. Only first he's going to pick on rich people. He's going to pick on rich people. Look what he says. Chapter 5, verse 1. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for your miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches are corrupted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver are corroded and their corrosion will be a witness against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have heaped up treasure in the last days. Wow. Who's he talking to there? Oh, he's talking to rich people. Well, when we hear the name, when we hear that title, well, that doesn't include us, does it? You would, when someone says, oh, we're talking about rich people, you wouldn't say, well, that's not me. That's somebody else. And somebody pops into your mind that you would consider rich. But he's talking to, remember, the 12 tribes that are scattered abroad. So he's talking to people who are in the church. But he's talking to rich people. And it says clearly, you rich. Now that word for rich... You see, we equate that to money. We equate that to finance. How big is your bank account? And we would all have a different standard of what rich would be. But let me tell you what that word really means. It means an abundance of earthly possessions. An abundance of earthly possessions. Well, that could include money, but it could also include stuff. Well, we live in the land where stuff is really important. Have you checked out the self-storage business lately? If you're looking to open a franchise or a company, get into the self-storage business. It's the fastest growing, most profitable business in the United States for small, for, for small businesses to get into. It's a little bit of setup, startup cost, but then it just produces income. Because people are running out of places to store their stuff. Their stuff. Think about that. How far do you have to... We're in a small town. And we're in, a, we're in the sixth 
poorest city in America, is what the latest polls say. The sixth poorest city. How far do you have to go to get to a self-storage facility in our city? Not very far. There's one down Virginia Avenue. There's one out on 51. There, there, there's one up at Naves Crossroads. They're all over the place. So people are renting these units, which, by the way, they would be called houses in other countries. They would be, they, people could live in those things. People are renting these units to store their stuff. So when James is referring to rich people, I want to put it into perspective. We're all rich. He's talking to us. He's talking to rich people because here's what I want you to remember. If you made $12,000 last year, $1,000 a month, if you made $12,000, statistics will tell us that you were in the top, what did I say here? Top 15% of the world. $12,000 puts you in the top 15%. That means 85% of the world's population made less than you did last year. If you made $25,000 last year, that puts you in the top 2% of the world. If you made $35,000 last year, that puts you in the top 1% of the world. That means 99% of the people made less than you. You say, Rob, well, I didn't make any of that. I'm on disability. I don't, I, I don't, I get. If you made $10,000 last year, if you made $10,000 last year, then you're in the top 10%. The top 10%. That doesn't sound right. I must have messed that up. Because the 12,000 puts you in the top, oh, top 20%. Top 20%. If you made 10,000, you're in the top 20%. Which means 80% of the world made less than you do. So James here is addressing these people who are in church, or part of this early church, who are wealthy. We fit that category. But there's also some other things they're doing. Now I want to make it clear to you, just because somebody's wealthy, doesn't mean they're, they're doing something wrong. Abraham was wealthy, David was wealthy, Solomon was wealthy. He did some things wrong. So did David and, and Abraham as well. But just because somebody is wealthy, it doesn't mean that God can't use that. It's a matter of perspective on what they're doing with that wealth. But there's people in this early church, and I think it would apply today, that their focus is on wealth. Their focus is on storing up things. And look what James says. He says you should, instead of trying to get richer, is what he's saying, you should be weeping and howling for your miseries. And that word means hardship, distress, or trouble. Your hardships, your distress, your trouble are coming upon you. Now, what does he mean by that? He's saying people are putting their faith in their wealth, and down the road, that's going to bring hardship and misery. Because your wealth isn't what's going to get you into heaven. But a wealthy person has a hard need or has a hard time understanding, why do I need Jesus? I have everything I need. I've got a house and a car and a few cars and a boat and my family's well-fed, whatever. Why, why do I need Jesus? So they begin putting their faith in wealth and James is saying, that's going to bring you misery. You should be weeping and you should be howling. But it's not just anybody with wealth. It's people who are doing certain things. Look what he says. He says, your riches are corrupted. That means decayed or rotten. Your garments are moth-eaten. You know what that means? That means you have so many clothes, they're hanging in the closet, and you're not even wearing them all. Nobody, moths don't eat clothes you're wearing. Moths eat clothes hanging in a closet that nobody's touching. Well, we can fix that. We put cedar in our closet. That keeps the moths away. James is saying these are the kind of things that people are, th these people are doing. He says, verse 3, your gold and silver are corroded. That means they're becoming tarnished. They're becoming corroded. Oxidation is building up. Their corrosion will be a witness against you and you will eat your flesh like fire. Did you ever have something that you couldn't use that created stress in your life? 
when I was in Florida, not long after Jacob was born, I had a boat. I, you guys don't know this about me, but I love to fish. Bass fishing is my thing. Done it my whole life, loved it. I had a boat, started having kids, and the boat sat in the garage. Sat in the garage. And it used to stress me out that I couldn't use the boat. It bugged me. I, I, I'm like, I got to use that boat. It's, I'm going to go to use it, and the engine won't start. Then I got to work on it and fix it. And it used to, it, it was a stress in my life that it was sitting in the garage not being used. But I didn't have time to use it. I was, it was just sitting there, and it would sit for a month, two months, three months, four months. Finally, I said, I got to get rid of this thing. I, finally, I sold it and got rid of it. And you know what a relief it was? It was like, wow, it's gone. I, I don't have to worry about you. I don't have to worry about maintaining it. I don't have to charge the battery. I don't have to deal any deal. It's gone. I don't have to worry about it anymore. It was a relief. So what James is saying, there's people, and we might be one of them, who are storing up stuff for the future. We're storing up stuff. We're going to need that someday. We have something up here that we didn't have in Florida. It's called a basement. If you want to know what you're storing, go down and look. You can find out what's down there. How long has it been since you've used it? What are you saving it for? What's the purpose of it? Can somebody else benefit from it? He's, he's storing that stuff. Now look what he says here in the last half of verse 3. You have heaped up treasure in the last days. Now that word treasure, it's not money, it's earthly possessions. You've heaped up earthly possessions in the last days. I think this clearly speaks to those people who are preparing for the end of the world. Those people who are storing guns, those people who are storing ammunition, those people who are storing all the food, those people who say, I've got it all planned out. I'm going to be a survivalist. I don't need faith. I've got survival mentality. I've got guns. I've got food. I'm going to say, what does James say? He says, you have heaped up stuff in the last days. I don't need to rely on the Lord to provide for me. I need to rely on my stuff. Now, I'm not saying... Don't prepare for the future events. But what I am saying is, where is your faith in the future events? Is your faith in the future on what you can store, what you can... Let me put it to you this way. Maybe somebody would come and say, well, I don't believe in the pre-tribulation rapture. I believe we're going to go through a really difficult time. So you set out and you're going to store everything up. You're going you're gonna to be prepared. You have, you know, 1,000 gallons of gas stored up. You have guns. You have ammunition. You have food to, live, to feed, you, feed you for six months. All this stuff. Let's say that... And you're a Christian. All right? Let's say you're going through this, and I'm going to protect my family. Well, the first week, all of a sudden the economy comes crashing down. Not, I'm fine. I'm good. i got my guns. Got my, they're all hidden around the house. Starting to eat good. i got all my, getting into my rations. got my MREs out. A few weeks go by. Your neighbors come knocking on the door. Hey, I'm hungry. We haven't eaten in a week. I noticed you haven't lost any weight like the rest of us. Can I have some food? What are you going to say? No, no, it's for me. It's for my family. I'm going to last another six months. Are you going to do what Christ would do? Give them some food. Are you going to shoot them because you've been storing up guns because you're afraid they might steal it? So now you're paranoid. As Christians, again, it's not that we shouldn't be prepared, but our preparation, as we're going to see, needs to be in the things of the Lord, not in the things of the earth. It needs to be in our heart, in our, in our, in our minds, in our attitudes of Christ, the things of God, that's where I need to be secure. If I'm secure in the things of Christ, it doesn't matter what happens to me on this earth. That's why somebody who faces an illness that's, that's bringing forth death, that's why a Christian can go, it's okay. It's okay. I know my time here is short. I'm going to see the Lord. 
yes, that might be difficult. And yes, my last days might be hard, but I've got confidence. I've got hope that in just a short time, don't mourn for me. I'm going to be face to face with my creator. James is saying this, hey, quit worrying about this stuff. Don't you think in our country we put a lot of emphasis on stuff? Anything you can see is rotting away. Anything you can see, it's going to be gone and rotting away. iPhones, cell phones, chairs, build, it's all rotting. All we do is spend our life trying to maintain the stuff because it's falling down. If you own a house, you know you're always doing what? Fixing it. It's always, there's always something breaking. There's always something leaking. There's always something I have to do. It's always, it's stuff. How much of my life do I spend maintaining my stuff versus how much of my life do I spend ministering for the Lord? The more stuff you have, the more maintenance that has to take place. Sometimes it's good to get rid of your stuff. And I'll take it. If you need some, just give it to me. If, if, let me know what it is first, you know. Any boats, things. No, I'm just kidding. Give it to the ch- No, I'm just, I, I, I would never do that. Consider it, though, because I think it's very relative and very, we can relate to this because we are a country that is very wealthy and we have lots of stuff. And James is saying, be careful, your stuff will not save you. The blood of Jesus Christ is what's going to save you. And look what he says as he goes on here. He says in verse 4, Indeed, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, cry out. Which, In other words, he's saying you didn't even treat your employees right. The people that worked for you, you didn't even give them a fair wage. You, you defrauded them. The cries of the reapers, these are the people that worked for you, have reached the ears of the Lord of the Sabbath. The people that worked for you, you've ripped off, and they're praying against you. That's not what I would want to be happening to me. Verse 5. You have lived on the earth in pleasure and luxury. You have fattened your hearts as in a day of slaughter. That word for pleasure means to live softly, to live simply for your pleasure. That means I'm only going to do it if I find it fun, if I find it interesting. My whole focus is entertainment. What's going to make me happy? That's what I'm looking for. Living on the world earth for pleasure. That means whatever, I'm not going to do it. I'm just, my whole, where's my next vacation coming from? Where's my next car, car coming from? Where, I want a bigger house. I want, I want the, if your life is being lived on what you want, you're living for pleasure. And it can come in all different shapes and sizes. Some people, wealthy people might be looking, I go on four, five, six, seven vacations a year. I'm living for pleasure. And some other people might go, well, I can't afford six or seven or five or even one vacation a year, but I'm living for pleasure in another sense. There's something else that's driving me to live for pleasure. James says, don't do it. Stop it. And he says, too, you've lived in luxury. And that word for luxury means to satisfy all of your appetites and desires. It means to literally live lewdly. It means you've lived a life where all your focus has been satisfying your appetites and your desires. I see something on TV. I've got to get it. I want it. I got to get the next thing. I want, to, I want everything in my life. I'm just doing it so I can satisfy the things I want. And the media will create want after want after want after want. And they'll even make you think it's a need after a need after a need. We don't need it. We don't need all the junk they're marketing, marketing to us. It, cre- it creates problems and stress in our life. In other words, James says you fattened your hearts as in a day of slaughter. You know what they do with the cow before they slaughter it? They fatten it up. What do they do? They give it as much food as it wants. Here, eat. Just put them on a, food, on a feed plot and just eat and eat and eat and eat. And why do they do that? They can get more money out of it. The fatter the cow, cows get sold by, by, by the pound. I'll get it fat and I can get more money. 
And the cow just gorges himself, getting fatter and fatter and fatter. He says, James says, there's people in the church doing the exact same thing. You're just gorging yourself on stuff. Just gorging yourself. Verse 6, you have condemned, you have murdered the just, and the just does not resist you, or he does not resist you. In other words, you've brought people, people into court. You've sued people for financial gain. You've condemned them in, in a court of law here. You've murdered, it, it, what you started out has turned into actually you've killed people over this. You say, Rob, I haven't done that. Whew, good, I'm glad it hasn't gotten that far in your life. But that's where, so the, the, that's, in other words, that's where the, 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 if you chase stuff long enough, then that's where you'll end up. That's what James is saying. But then he turns, here in verse 7, that's kind of a harsh thing we just read. You know, he's pretty harsh and pretty direct. But then he turns back to the brothers. He says this. He says, therefore, be patient, brethren. Be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, waiting patiently for it until, until it receives the early and the latter rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. You see, in that day, many of the believers were being stepped on, being used, being put down by the wealthy. People that were even within the church that, at that time. But James says, be patient. Oh, that's not a word we like. Can we just skip over this section? I don't want to hear about patience. I don't have the patience to sit here and listen to you talk about patience. James says, be patient. And let me tell you what the word means. It means this. It means to bear up. To bear up under provocation. That means somebody's provoking you without complaint. That means to bear up, to stand up, to hold up under the provoking of somebody else and you don't complain about it. That's patience. That's what patience is. To bear up. To, it's long-suffering. Being able to go through something without... If you complain about it, you're not patient. It's being able to endure something for a long time without responding back. It's somebody treating you wrongly and you be able to bear up and you be able to stand even though someone's treating you wrongly and you be able to say, I'm going to let the Lord fight the battle for me. I'm going to let the Lord defend my reputation. I'm going to stand and I'm not going to get a hold of, hey, I need you to pray for me. Why? Let me tell you what so-and-so did to me. And you begin complaining to another Christian. No, that's not patience. Patience is you just enduring you just standing in the face of whatever it is that the Lord's called you to be in today or next week or next month. It's just bearing it up, bearing it up. He says, be patient, brethren. Rob, why should I be patient? Look what he tells us. Be patient until the coming of the Lord. Until the coming of the Lord. He says it's like the farmer. The farmer plants the fields. And then what does he have to do? He has to wait. And what does he have to do when he's waiting? He prays. What is he praying for? Rain. If I plant the field and there's no rain, what do I have coming? Nothing. It's completely out of his control. He plants the field, he prays for rain, and then he waits. And he waits for the rain. The former and the latter rains. And then, he, and then the harvest comes. That's the way that we should be as believers. Verse 8, you also be patient. Again, you endure, you bear up, you long suffer. And he says here, after uh, being patient, establish establish your hearts so so important for a believer in jesus christ to establish their hearts it means to fix in place if i it's like screwing something to a wall it's fixed it's permanent it's attached 
I have to establish my heart to Jesus Christ. I don't fix it and establish it if, if the Lord does what I want him to do. Well, Lord, I'll establish my heart to you if you heal me from my sickness. Well, Rob, that's not what's best for you. I'm doing something in your life. I'm trying to draw you closer. You're going to understand someday that, that you being ill is going to, to benefit you in eternity. No, Lord, that's not what I want. Therefore, I am not establishing myself to you. That's not who we want to be. We want to be the people that establish ourselves to the Lord. We attach ourselves to the Lord. We're patient, which means we can bear up. We can stand under difficult circumstances. We can be long-suffering. Rob, why do we do all this? Why? Look what he says there at the end of verse 8. For the coming of the Lord is at hand. For the coming of the Lord is at hand. Why am I patient? Why am I long-suffering? Why do I establish my heart? James just said, because Jesus is coming back. He's coming back. Well, Rob, it's been a long time since James, James wrote this letter, and we haven't seen him yet. It doesn't matter. James said he's coming back. And I want to share a couple other places in Scripture. Turn with me to John 14. Not only did James say that Jesus was coming back, we're going to read that Jesus said that Jesus was coming back. John chapter 14, verse 1 says, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. And this is Jesus speaking. He said, In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And where I go, you know, and the way you know. And Thomas says, Lord, we don't know where you are going. And how can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way. I am the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is coming back. James said it. Jesus said it. In the book, of, you don't need to turn there, but just I'm going to turn over to the book of, uh, of Matthew. Matthew chapter 24, verse 36 says, But of that day and hour no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but the fathers only. But as the days of Noah were so also, the coming of the Son of... Will so all, will, let me start over. But as the days of Noah so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and did not know until the flood came and he took them away. So also the coming of the Son of Man will be. Then two men will be in the field. One will be taken, the other left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and the other will be left. Watch therefore, for you do not know what hour your Lord is coming. But know this, and if a master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to get broken into. Therefore you also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. James said Jesus is coming back. Jesus said Jesus is coming back. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, Paul tells us about it. He says, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with the shout of the voice of an archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. And verse 17, chapter 4, verse 17 says, Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. 
Rob, why should we be patient? Why should we endure? Why should we do that? James is living his life with the expectation that Jesus could return at any moment. Do you live your life with that expectation? Do you really think today could be the day? Do you know there's no biblical prophecy from a pre-tribulation rapture perspective that is waiting to be fulfilled before the return of Christ? It could be today. It could be tomorrow. The reason that's so important is because if you don't believe that he's coming back, then you have no, no urgency in what you do. There's nothing, you just, ah, I'll get to it later. When I was younger, I thought, when I get married, then I'll, then I'll look for things of God. Then I'll find a church. Then I'll do those things. That's for older people. I'll, I'll do that later. But as we just read in the previous chapter, in verse four, in chapter 4 in James, James says, you don't, your life is but a vapor. Tomorrow's not guaranteed for you. Don't boast about what you're going to do in the future because you're not guaranteed your future. So there's an easy, it's so clear what he's saying. The return of Christ should be the motivation of the believer for living with the hope that he has in that return of Christ. That's what allows him to go through something difficult. That's what allows him to look at his life and go, you know what, this is temporary. I can get through this. The Lord might come back today. But there's two, there's two, there's two ends to this. Some people could be, ah, all I want is the Lord to come back. I don't want to be bothered with anything on earth. I just want him to come back. I don't care. I don't like my life. I don't like anything about this. I just, I just want him to come back. That's one side. Well, you're not doing the things of the Lord. You're just, you're just sitting there looking up and you're not accomplishing anything. You, you forget that he made you for a purpose and there's work to be done. The other side is the Lord's coming back. I've got to prepare. I've got to, get, I've got to, I've got to pack my house. I've got to get my guns. I've got to, I've got to do all this stuff. I don't think he's ever coming back. Well, which side, which side do we fall on? I think it's important that we, we fall in the middle. I think it's important that we look and say, you know what, today could be the day the Lord comes back. But I'm going to be busy about his work. I'm going to be busy doing the things he's called me to do until that return. Everybody before you, every Christian before you looked as the Lord was going to return. Paul thought the Lord would return the end of, by the end of his life. James says here in verse 8, for the, Lord is, for the coming of the Lord is at hand or draws near or draws nigh in the King James. That means it's coming soon. But it's been 2,000 years, and almost 1,900 years since this was written. I guess he had it wrong, but he wouldn't have lived any other way because it's what causes him to live with the expectancy of that return. It's so important in the believer's life. Because if we don't expect the return, we just, ah, we'll put it off. I don't need to change today. I can just continue in my sin. Because the Lord's coming back next month, next year. But we just read nobody knows the day or the hour. Nobody knows. It could be any time. But he goes on. Verse 9, he says, do, do not grumble. Do not grumble. That means complain against one another, brethren, lest you be condemned. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. Don't complain against one another. We are, and I, well, I'll speak for myself here. I have a tendency to complain. How about you? Now, I like to do it in a nice way. I like to do it in a non-offensive way, but I have a tendency to complain. Even in my prayers sometimes, I'll, God, why are you letting this happen? Or why are you doing, and you know what it's like? He just says it's, you're complaining. And, and actually, he says you're whining. It's like, stop whining, stop complaining against one another specifically. Do you complain about other people in your life? 
Do you complain about the people that you interact with every day? Do you complain about your, employ- your fellow employees? Do you complain about the people? If you have a job where you serve people, are you complaining about the people you're serving? Well, yeah, sure we do. We all get around the water cooler at work and we complain. That's just what we do. It makes us feel better about ourselves. Try this. Lord, would you show me these people the way that you see them? Would you, would you give me your heart for these people? Would I see these people that don't know you, that don't have the same hope that I have, Can I see them the way that you see them, which is lost sheep? That you're willing to leave the 99 sheep that know you and go find the one that's lost? Will I do that or do I just want to gather and complain about the way that somebody... Can can you believe what happened? Can you believe what happened in the commercials at the Super Bowl? You know? If you're not a believer, do we expect non-believers to act like believers? I, I, I would be happy if the believers would act like believers. Let's not expect non-believers to act like believers. Let's expect expect the believers to act like believers. But James is saying, hey, stop the groaning. Stop the complaining. Stop the moaning. Why? Because you have the hope that the Lord is coming back anytime. But Rob, you don't understand my situation. Stop complaining. He gives you an example. Verse 10, my brethren, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord as an example of long-suffering and patience. Indeed, we count them blessed who endure. Notice that. Endurance. We count them blessed who endure. Endurance, perseverance of Job. You have, you have heard of the perseverance of Job and seen, an end, and seen the end intended by the Lord. That The Lord is very compassionate and merciful. You guys know the story of Job. If you don't know, he was worshiping the Lord and, the Lord, and Satan comes and visits the Lord one day and says, Lord, you know, going to and fro on the earth. And the Lord says to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? And Satan says, ah... He's only doing so well because you won't let anybody near him. I'll make the story short, but the Lord says after a couple of visits, go ahead. You can do whatever you want to him. Just, don't take, his, just don't, don't take his life. He gets sick, loses all his kids. Everything, loses everything. And you might say, well, why would God allow that to happen? That just, I don't want to serve a God like that. The end was a double blessing for Job. After he endured all of the illness, all the loss of his family. He was blessed with twice as many kids and twice as much wealth because he endured to the end. I am convinced the end of something is much more important than the beginning. It's how we finish, not how we start. Your life is about how you finish your life, not how you start. There's lots of people that come to the Lord Jesus Christ and they come forward and they pray a prayer, Lord, forgive me of my sins, and I'm saved. That's a great beginning, but it's a poor ending. If that's the only interaction somebody's had with the Lord is because they've answered an altar call in church, that's a terrible ending. I say it this way. Your testimony begins the day you got saved. I don't want to hear how bad you were. That's your bragamony. That's how many things you did wrong. That's how you did horrible. That's that you're bragging about how bad you were. I got that. I want to hear a testimony of what has God done in your life from the day that you got saved. Where has he brought you from? From the moment you said, Lord, I'll follow you. That's a testimony. That's what you, that's, isn't that what you want to hear too? It's, we know the Lord can save anybody. We know that he can save and forgive all kinds of sins. That we, we look at even scratch your head, oh, Lord, how can you forgive that? But he does. But what does he do with the life? What does he do with the man or a woman that says, Lord, I'll live for you? I, I'm not perfect. And you know what you're getting. You're getting a sinner. But I'll give you my life and I'll do whatever you want. And then as that person walks through the rest of their life, That's what the Lord says. Wow. Look what the Lord can do in the life of somebody. 
You might look at me and go, well, you're a pastor. I wasn't a pastor. I was a cop. That's my education. That's my training. I was a cop. Never been to Bible college. You guys know that. I just study the scriptures like the Lord has showed me. Never been to Bible college, never taken a college class in reference to the scriptures. I do have a college degree, but it's not, it's not that I'm uneducated because I study a lot. But it's all been self-taught through the Holy Spirit. Don't look at me and go, I could never do that. I made that mistake. You'll find yourself standing here someday. But if you're willing to surrender your life, the Lord will equip you for whatever he's called you to. And in order to enjoy those blessings, you have to get out of your comfort zone to do that. I, was, I don't like talking in front of people. I really don't. Small crowds are more intimidating than big crowds to me. Because I can see all you guys, and you look at me, I'm wondering, if, what, are you, what are they thinking? You know? I don't walk into the room and like to be the center of attention. I'd rather sit quietly in the back. Well, why are you up there, Rob? Why do you do this every week? Because it's what the Lord's called me to do. And he empowers me. He teaches me. He's the one that gives me the messages every week, not me. I was listening to myself on the radio last week. I never do that. And I was listening to myself, and I thought, I can't believe I said that. That was pretty good. And I didn't even remember saying it. So I'm convinced that he takes the words that I, that I plan to say, and he turns them around, and they come out right. I was listening. I'm like, man, those were three really good points. And I wasn't saying that to, to be prideful. I was saying, I, don't remember, I didn't remember preparing that Bible study. But it spoke to me. I was, I, was, I was like speaking to myself. It was great. So James says this in verse 11, Indeed, we count them blessed who endure. You have heard of the perseverance of Job. See the end intended, See the end intended by the Lord, that the Lord is very compassionate and merciful. There's an end intended for your life. Will you allow it to be the Lord's end? Or are you going to take matters into your own hands? Are you going to do things your way? Job never cursed God. Mrs. Job wanted him to curse God. Mrs. Job, his wife, said, curse God and die, Job. And Job said, no, I won't do that. And the blessings were twice as much. But he had to endure the hardship. Had he quit, had he, cur had he cursed God, he would have missed the miracle. He would have missed what God was doing. We must be people who have a mindset, the Lord is coming back and I will endure until the last breath that I take on this earth. I will not give up. I will walk faithfully. Nothing is going to pull me away. If I sin, I will repent and I will get right back up and follow the Lord again because I have all the grace I need. We must not be people who waver back and forth. That's not what the, body, that's not what the Lord needs. I'm going to tell you a secret. He doesn't need your money. He doesn't need your opinion. He doesn't need your intelligence. What does He need? Your obedience. All He needs is your obedience. If you will surrender that to Him, he will do absolutely incredible things with your life, things that you never thought possible if you will simply give him the obedience that he's asking for. And then in verse 12, James says this, and we'll close in this verse. But above all, brethren, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or with any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no, no, lest you fall into judgment. Now, he's not talking about saying dirty words there. He's not talking about saying curse words there. Although if you're being convicted to stop cursing, then use that verse if necessary. But James is talking about somebody, well, let me put it to you this way. Do you ever talk to somebody and they give you an answer and you don't really believe them, you kind of give them that look and they say what? I swear. And they swear on 
the Bible, they swear on their mother's grave, they swear on all kinds of things. Usually when somebody says, I swear, do you know what that means? It means they're a liar. Why? Because they've lied so many times before, now they're saying, I really, 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 really mean it this time. James is saying, don't be somebody who has to swear. You should be somebody, whether you're a man or a woman, then when you say, yes, I will do that, then it gets done. There's no doubt about it. There's no question. If I say to you, all right, I'm going to call you tomorrow. You shouldn't be laughed to say, well, do you swear? Do you promise? Are you sure? If you have to say that to me, that means that I've told you before that I'll call you or, done some, or not done something that I've told you that I would do. We as believers need to be people who are of our word. If, you say, if I say to you or you say to me, hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to come by the house tomorrow and, and help you do something, well, you better be of your word. And I shouldn't have to wonder, yeah, right, I've heard that before. If, that, if people can say that about you, then that's something that needs to change in your life. We need to be people who are yes or yes. I don't need to say I swear. I say yes. Will you do this? Yes. I'll see you tomorrow. And you shouldn't have to wonder if I'm coming over tomorrow or whatever, whatever it might be. That's all James is saying. Why do you have to instruct the Christians in the church to act like this? Because they're not acting like it. They're acting like the rest of the world. A Christian needs to be a man or a woman of his or her word. Let your yes be yes. Let your no be no. If you say you're going to do it, do it. And it doesn't mean that something won't come up. It doesn't mean that, you know, that some, your car won't break down and you can't make it. It doesn't mean that, there's never a, that you can never do it. But it means that you'll go to any length or great lengths to get done what you said you would do. It means that you won't just look for an excuse to get out of it because you said you would. You ever had that happen to you? You ever been on the receiving end of that where someone says they're going to do something and you're waiting and you're waiting and you're waiting and you're waiting? I love this. My dad. If you tell my dad that you're going to call him at 10 o'clock, he's from a generation where they will sit by that phone and wait for that phone call. And he will not go out to lunch he will not leave. He will sit by that phone and wait for the phone call because you said you would call at 10 o'clock. The younger generation, what do they do? Eh, we have cell phones. I'll just get it later. Something else came up. It means nothing. But the older generation, when they said, hey, I'm going to call you at 10 o'clock tomorrow, they're standing there waiting for the phone call. They're expecting the call. But so often we're just like, ah, I'll get to it when I get to it. No, let's be people of our word. Let's be purposeful in doing what we say we're going to do. Now, I'm going to make it hit home. That means when you tell the Lord you're going to do something, you do it. That means when the Lord puts on your heart to change something, you say, all right, Lord, I'll do that. Don't only be a person of your word to each other. Be a person of your word to the Lord. When you promise the Lord something, Lord, I'm going to change the way I'm thinking. I'm going to change the way I'm acting. I'm not going to do that anymore. Then be a man of your word or a woman of your word and change it. It's as simple as that. Or is the Lord always on the receiving end of that going, now he's not like this, but if I was God, I'd be like, yeah, I've heard that before. Yeah, you said you were going to never do that again about 13,000 times over the last five years. That's not the way he is. The Lord is the other way. He's, he says, okay, I know you can do it. I'm here, I'll help you. Be a person of your word. Let, it be the, let this be the time. Let's, let's make our commitments to the Lord real. What about with salvation? What about when somebody says, I'm going to follow you, Christ? That's the basic, the basic premise of salvation is, forgive me for my sins, I want to follow you. 
Can that be a person? Can that person be a person of your word? How many times have you watched the big altar call and 500 people come forward in a big church and, and you're wondering, where are they all going to be next week? And they've been guilted or they've been emotionally moved to come forward in a message because, they wanna, because somebody, their neighbor brought them and they feel guilty to do it. No, make that commitment between you and the Lord and be a man or a woman of your, of your word. Don't make, it, don't make it to me because who knows where I'll be in 10 or 20 years or 30 years or even five, even next year. Who knows where I'll be next month? I'm not, my life's not guaranteed. Neither is yours. James gives us very, very practical insight. And this morning he says, hey, listen, if you're wealthy, and by the way, we all are to different degrees, take a look at what you're doing with your wealth. Is that your motivation? Are you the businessman or woman that's just trying to store up money and store up money and store up money? Are you just maintaining all of your stuff or you have time for ministry? And he says, take a look at your patience. Are you patient? Are you able to endure something for a long time? Or are you able to, well, I can endure it, but I'm going to complain about it. Remember what, the word, remember what the definition of patience was. To bear up under provocation without complaint. To bear up while somebody or something's provoking you without complaining. Don't be complainers. And think about this. Plan it. How do you want to finish your life? How do you want it to end? Are you, do, you, do you want it to end strong? I've watched a lot of guys in ministry, a lot of pastors, they start out great. They start out strong. And then something happens. Whether it be sin creeps in or whatever it is, something happens. It doesn't go the way they thought. They get burned out. Whatever it is, they end it. They, they walk away from ministry. They didn't finish it. Now, there's times where, where men are called or women are called out of ministry. I certainly believe that too. But oftentimes, it, men and women are not finishing their ministry because they're not able to have the patience to finish their ministry. They're not able, they, just, they just move forward and they don't like what they're seeing. I got to talk to a guy this week. Um, he just moved to Valdosta, left uh, uh, Marlboro, Maryland. Where's Marlboro, Maryland? Anybody know? Where, where is it? PG County. Just moved to Valdosta, Georgia, three months ago to plant a Calvary Chapel. You know, and he's looking, and, and, and you know, he said, you know, I was talking to him, and he found out that we haven't been around that long, and we're relatively, relatively new church planting. So he had all these questions for me. And I kind of chuckled. And I'm like, I know what you're going through. I, I know, will you be patient? And I challenged him with this. I said, will you give it five years? Will you wait five years before you decide to quit? And he looked at me. I said, five years. I said, you're, it's a calling of God. Will you wait five years? And he said he would. I said, well, don't even think about quitting for five years. Watch what God does. Because it's going to take time. It's, he, he knew nobody. Him and his wife and his kids packed up and moved. The Lord called him. Pray for him, you know. Pray for him. But uh, he's on his way. But I've watched many other people go out. And they give it a year. And it didn't go the way I wanted, and they left. I don't have 500 people yet, so I'm, I'm out of there. You know, or, uh, just, it's too hard, you know. Oh, you don't understand where, I, where, where my church is. The, the people, just, the ground is hard. Now stop it. If the Lord called you there, stay there, be there, grow there. Let it be hard. Let it, it's okay. Endure, persevere, patience, long-suffering. So consider today, what's the end of your life going to hold? Will you finish strong? As Paul says, will you finish the race? Will you finish well in Christ? Or are you just one, one thing away, one temptation away from being pulled away? Well, Lord, if I don't get better, if you don't heal me, then I'm out of here. Is that, is that what the relationship with you and the Lord's based on? 
Or is it, Lord, if I don't get this job, or I don't get that job, or I don't, I don't find a, if you don't give me a husband or a wife, or a, what, what, is your, what is the relationship based on? It should be based on his love for you, not what he can do for you. Father, we thank you for your word. And although James is hard, Lord, he speaks to our heart. He convicts us. Lord, as I study these scriptures, I'm convicted. Lord, I know sometimes I'm not patient. I know sometimes I complain. But Lord, you love us anyways. You chose us. You, you, we, you knew what you were getting. But Father, would you change us? Lord, may we establish our yeses and our noes with you first. As you convict, as you, as your still small voice, as the Holy Spirit just whispers, hey, change this about yourself. Stop doing this or that. Or start doing something. May we respond in obedience, Lord. Lord, may we know that you have our best interest at heart. The things that you tell us to stop aren't good for us. The things that you tell us to do, even though we might look at them and wonder how or why, that those are good for us. Father, may we not doubt you. For you've demonstrated your love to us. Now may we demonstrate our life to you. You died for us. May we live for you. In Jesus' name. Amen.